It's great to uh, be able to introduce you to Peter Anderson. Uh, Peter's a personal friend. He has been a friend of King's for uh, many years. They planted Destiny just a couple of years before King's got planted. And even though he's younger than me or Matthew, he's been like an elder brother cheering us along all the way. And uh, we also share this um, strange like of Scottish football together and... uh, and Pete and I are often at the, the same games watching it together, which is great fun. Um, here's something I'd really commend to you about Pete. He loves the body of Christ. He loves the church. And whenever I see him, he's cheering every single church he knows on towards what Jesus wants for it. He's a big-hearted guy, and I know that today you're going to be blessed through what he says. So I want to just uh, invite you to, to welcome Pete. Pleasure, mate. So good to be with you folks. Thanks, Dan, for the after-lunch session. (laughs) Now, Dan, also, I want to thank him for the title tonight. Today's title is Avoiding the Pitfalls in Leadership. And he thought, who do I know who's made many mistakes? So, So thanks for that one, Dan. But hey, what's great about the Bible is the Bible is just a book full of, it's quite a gritty book, right? It's very gritty. And what I love about the Bible is it's not sanitized. It's actually just a collection of people, oftentimes who failed, oftentimes who were in crisis, and amazingly, God did a wonder. God did a work. Through people who failed, were in crisis, and it's just an amazing testimony of God's grace, God's perseverance with people, to not quit on a people. I've written down a few names here. You've got Jacob, who was a cheater. You've got Peter, who had a temper. You had David, who had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossiper. Martha was a warrior. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was depressed. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was short. <laughs> Abraham was old and Lazarus was dead. Right, so you've got, you got, you got such a motley crew of people, but God just, God just used those people. So he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And uh, we're so grateful to God that the symbol of our religion is, is not the ladder, it's the cross. And when we fail and when we make a mess, God doesn't say, okay, you now start back down here again. Amazingly, you see, like the Apostle Peter, he blew it big stuff. I can't think of a, a greater mess up than denying Jesus when it most counted. And yet seven weeks after his greatest failure, he went on to have his greatest success as he stood up on Pentecost and uh, saw the, the church burst in effect on the day of Pentecost. Isn't that great? So God, I pray, speak to us just now as we turn to the book of Revelation. I pray you'd impact our hearts as leaders. I pray you'd encourage us, speak to us, challenge us when necessary. Move among us, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to, in this, in this session, I'm going to unpack for us Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And the reason I've, I've gone there to tackle avoiding the pitfalls of leadership is actually the book of Revelation wasn't just written for the church. In each one, as you know, Revelation was written to seven churches, but this reoccurring phrase, let him who is here hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It was actually written for those churches back then, 2,000 years ago, but it's also written for us 2,000 years later, churches in 2018. And actually, God gave us that book because typically the things you see surfacing in those churches are typically the things we see surfacing in our churches. Same challenges. Things haven't really changed in these 2,000 years. So God's given us a very, very helpful collection of words to churches. And what's interesting as well is to each one of the churches, he says, to the angel 
of the church in Ephesus, Sardis, Thyatira, and so on. And most of the commentators, when you look at, well, who was Jesus was writing to the angel of the church, who was the angel of the church? And most commentators would say it's probably referring to the pastor, to the leader. So to the, it's amazing. I mean, it's that's quite incredible. He calls the pastors an angel. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> it calls the pastors angels. But if you think about it, angels are messengers of God. And we have this incredible high call as leaders, whether you're a pastor or a leader in the church, is you represent God. And angels, it says in Hebrews, that we are ministering servants, ministering spirits sent to serve those who have inherited salvation. That's an angel's job. Well, it's kind of like a leader's job. We're, we're there to serve people who have inherited salvation. So here's Jesus speaking to leaders of these churches. And, and what's also interesting, just as a, a kind of general comment to make before we get into each of these seven churches, general comment is, is Jesus doesn't rebuke any of the churches for not growing well enough. That's, that's not a comment Jesus makes. He doesn't say, this I have against you, you're still really small. Okay? He doesn't make that comment. He doesn't comment about the size of what they're doing. He typically comments about the health of what they're doing. Because actually, it, the issue isn't church growth, the issue is church health. It always is. You keep the church healthy and growth will happen naturally. So let's zoom right in to each of these seven messages. And I, and I believe these are seven points that will help us avoid pitfalls of leadership. Number one, stay in love. Turn to your neighbor and say, stay in love. Now give them a kiss. No, no don't. <laughs> Revelation chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured, endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary and yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. It's that, it's that big question. You know, can you, so this is, this is a church that's now a 44-year-old church. Paul planted the church at Ephesus 44 years before this moment when Jesus is speaking to the church. The question is, the older you get, can you stay in love? And you, you kind of see the old couple walking hand in hand down the street. It's like there was one couple and they... It was, in, it, was just, it was nighttime, they were just lying in bed together and she turned to him and said, honey, you never, you never kissed me on the cheek like you used to. So feeling a little bit obliged, he kind of re- slipped across our side and kissed her on the cheek. And she said, you never hold my hand under the covers like you used to. So, so he, he shuffled his hand along under the duvet and found her hand and gave it a wee squeeze. And she said, you never nibbled my neck like you used to. At this, he got out of the bed and walked out of the room. And she said, what, what have I done? What have I done? I said, no, don't worry, honey. I just need to go and get my false teeth. I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> is, is it possible to stay, keep, keep that love, on it, stay in love for the long term? Is it possible that actually, when it comes to our relationship with God, that years later, we're more in love with God than we were even at the beginning, even in those red hot, exciting days, those early days. Let's just go back. Jesus said, go and do the deeds you did at first. Let's look at the, the beginnings of the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, Paul plants the church in Ephesus. And here's what it looked like. Here's what this church falling in love with Jesus looked like. Acts 19 verse one. I'm gonna skip through the verses. He found some disciples. Verse six, when Paul had placed hands in them, the Holy Spirit came in them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. 
And you know, so you, you remember that moment probably for yourself when you were impacted by the Holy Spirit and maybe you spoke in tongues, maybe you prophesied. And, and here you are years later and you kind of still pray in tongues, but it's become ritual. You know, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, if, 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 if you pray in tongues or prophesy without love, you're just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You're just making noise. Is it still, do you still, do you still have tears? Do you still, oh, thank you, Jesus. Is there still this longing in your heart for God? And then verse nine, it says, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius, some dinosaur or another. <laughs> this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And, that, and again, that's just, that's just love. You know, here's Paul mobilizing disciples and they're just in love with Jesus. And that's what, that's what you do, isn't it? When you're in love, you just tell everyone about the one you love. It's not hard. You don't have to, oh, please tell me. No, you're, you're almost saying, okay, I've heard enough, thanks. That's what they're like in those early days. But Jesus is saying there's something about that that's really awesome. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. You know, it was that childlike expectation for the miraculous. You know, it was, you weren't, and some people, you know you used to be more expecting for the miraculous, but now you're wiser. Now you've got reasons why it doesn't always happen. And you're, you're not as radical as you used to go for it. You used to go for the jugular, but you don't do that anymore. You're not radical anymore. And, but actually, some of that childlike naivety is not so naive, actually. It's pretty wise. It's digging that up again. And you no longer rejoice with those who rejoice when they see the miracles. You're kind of thinking, well, that's not my miracle. Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their deeds. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls and burned them publicly. And they calculated the value of the Harry Potter, sorry, the scrolls. And the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, 50,000 drachmas. That's, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but we don't know what a drachma is. But actually, a drachma was a day's wages. So 50,000 days wages. That's millions of pounds. That's, that's a lot of money. So this was the kind of, you know, when you're first in love, you, you'll, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll give up anything, it'll cost me anything. That's what people in love do. There's that radical generosity, that radical upfrightness. Have you still got that? You don't want, and I get you've got to be a bit balanced. I get that. But you don't want to be so balanced you're no longer radical and no longer in love. And I just feel maybe we've got to go back and pray some of the prayers we used to pray. I remember praying prayers, and I deliberately try and resurrect these prayers. I, pray prayer, I prayed prayers like this, and I, and I try and resurrect these prayers on a regular basis. God, whatever it takes, glorify yourself to the utmost through me. If I've told God I would rather die than not bring glory to God with my life. I'd rather not be around and be in people's way than not bring glory to God with my life. Do you still pray the radical prayers? Maybe the ones you used to pray at the youth rally or at, the, at, the, at that moment when you first stirred up. Hey, dig some of those prayers up again. Get soft again. Get in love again. Pray some of the radical prayers again. And you know, <laughs> this is what can happen is, you, it's like a relationship. The children are born because of love. The intimacy births the kids in the first place. But then you can end up just trying to raise these kids that you've birthed out of love. And what can happen in a couple is they get so consumed with raising the kids that they lose sight of the love that brought the kids into the world in the first place. You know, sometimes in 
a parenting seminar or something like that, I, I will say to dads, the best thing you can do for your kids is love their mum. In other words, it's that relationship that brought those kids into the world in the first place that if that relationship's doing well, the kids will do great. Actually giving attention to that rather than necessarily the coal face is what will give success. So it's keeping that relationship with God alive, that relationship that brought the fruit in the first place, that relationship that caused your church to grow in the first place or your small group to grow, or your ministry to grow in the first place. It's that relationship that will actually keep it growing because as Jesus said, if you abide in me, that's where the fruitfulness comes. Uh, second exhortation for leaders is just keep going. In Revelation 2 verse 8, it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and who came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. They're of a synagogue of Satan. It's not very encouraging, but strong words from Jesus. Do not be afraid about what you're going to suffer. I tell you, the devil is about to put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Here Jesus makes it really clear that behind persecution is the devil. All right? It's not just that they, they got hacked off at you. It's that actually behind a lot of persecution, whatever country you find yourself in, the devil is behind that. He will always stir up things against the truth. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the victor's crown. Whoever is he is, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's interesting about this place, Smyrna, is it was, this, it was the main seat of emperor worship in that entire region. In fact, it was the first place that the practice of Kaiser Curios started. Kaiser Curios, which translates Caesar is Lord. The practice of people being forced to declare their allegiance to Caesar in that way happened first in Smyrna. And what, was ha- what happened every year, annually, all the citizens of the area were forced to make a declaration of Caesar being Lord. And they were to offer a bit of incense in an altar and declare him to be Lord. Now, Christians couldn't do that. Because when they said Caesar is Lord, it's not just that he's, he's, he's prime minister. It's, it literally had, a, uh, it had an inference of deity. The, the emperors received worship and they encouraged that. So the Christians were refusing. They couldn't do this. So as a result, it became a very, very t- hard place to be a Christian. And in, in Smyrna, in fact, the name Smyrna, you think about the word Smyrna, myrrh. It's got the word myrrh in it. Smyrna was actually the largest port where they exported myrrh beyond that region. Myrrh, as you know, features in the Bible. There was the wise men brought myrrh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus when he was born. Myrrh has high symbolism. Myrrh is a strange gift to give a kid. Myrrh was a painkiller and it was used for to embalm dead bodies. Imagine you just had a kid and... and Uncle Dan comes around to visit. Hey, I brought you some ibuprofen and a coffin. There you go. <laughs> Welcome to the world. You know, it's a we- kind of weird Uncle Dan. It's a kind of weird gift to give your kids. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, the Magi brought Jesus myrrh, which was for a painkiller and which was to embalm dead bodies. But obviously we know it's symbolic, uh, prophetic symbolism about Jesus Christ's mission to come and die on behalf of, of this world. Smyrna, myrrh. You know, where's God when we're suffering? Well, in our religion, we've got the greatest answer. Our God suffered. There is no religion that's got such a view of God. God became a man, died in our place and suffered. Now, this church was started by John himself, John the Apostle, who's writing from Patmos, writing the book of Revelation. And John writing this uh, is actually writing to a pastor who he knows. Polycarp 
who was jo- whom John had mentored, was most likely the elder, the lead elder in the church of Smyrna when the book of Revelation came through, Polycarp. And history tells us that Polycarp had been pastor there, he'd been mentored by John from a young age, and he'd been pastor there for 60 years, longevity of leadership. And uh, the Romans held public games in Smyrna, and on that particular occasion, they were killing Christians in these public games, and Polycarp was brought before the audience, and he was forced to declare Caesar is Lord. He refused. He was forced to declare Caesar is Lord and to curse Christ, and he refused. And the, and the, the, the governor of the town said this, have pity on your white hairs, because he was a very old man in his 80s. Just curse Christ, and you can return to your cottage. And Polycarp replies, for 86 years I have been Christ's servant. He has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he was burned at the stake and stabbed. It's, it, it's, it was gritty being a Christian in those days. But do you know today, Christianity is the most persecuted religion. Every five minutes, in fact, some estimate it's less, but every five minutes someone dies for their faith on earth. That means every, every year there's over 100,000 people die for following Jesus. There have more people died for their faith in Jesus in the last 100 years than have in the previous 1,900 years since Jesus Christ was on the earth. This, they, they weren't the bad old days. These are the bad old days. It's, it's just we happen to be in a comfortable part of the world. But I do have to say this. Persecution is not confined to places where the law allows it. Because the devil who is behind persecution is operative in every situation. So leaders, here's the thing. The day you decide to seriously step up and make a difference for the glory of God, the devil takes a contract out in your life. There is a target on your back. Have you ever noticed that, you know, when you stepped up to do that thing for the Lord or stepped up to take that responsibility? You ever noticed that kind of, it's like all hell broke loose? Anyone relate to that? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like all, and that's by design. You become a target. You're standing up for the kingdom of God. You become a target. And Satan does this all the time. When we started our church in Edinburgh, man, we had all sorts of the craziest things happen. We had witches come at us with all, in all sorts of strange ways, strangest stories. We had physical threats. We had terrible answer machine, death threats on our answer machine. We had, we had um, churches totally discourage us from doing what we were doing. We, we were up against it, big style. And we didn't have anyone stone us. We didn't have anyone burn us at the stake because the law forbids it here because Christianity has impacted our legal system to the point where Christians have freedom of speech and protection. But the same devils who are at work in Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and North Korea are the same devils that are at work here. And you stand up for truth and you will be attacked. Pastors, leaders, you are a target. You are a target. You are messing with, with the, the, the domain of darkness. And Satan doesn't like it. God loves it. You know, 40% of most pastors quit in the first five years of ministry. But the most fruitful years of ministry come from year six onwards. So persevere, keep going. It says in verses, the last verses we read there, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The victor crown isn't a, a gold crown. It actually is it's the Greek word Stephanos. It describes a laurel wreath. It's the laurel wreath that was given to the athletes when they crossed that finish line. So God's going to give you the victor's crown. Keep going. Don't quit. Persevere. Being a leader is not the easy option. But you've got to think bigger than this life. See, there's something 
more important to you than you living. The worst thing that can happen to you is not that you die. Seriously. And this verse is really good. The worst thing that can happen to you actually is that you become unfaithful. A million years from now, it will not matter that you died. A million years from now, it will matter a whole ton whether or not you're faithful. And so the, 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 you've got to have a different perspective and follow the God of eternity. Thirdly, don't compromise. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat sacrifice, things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. So you have some among you who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So who was Balaam? If you know your Old Testament, you kind of know the, this, this guy's name. Balaam appears in Numbers 22 to 24. And he was a guy who was hired to curse Israel. And on three occasions, he tried to curse, but instead out came blessing. And you kind of think, well, that was the end of him. But actually it wasn't. What he then went on to do was to give advice to this, uh, this king who was against Israel, give advice to him. Here's what you need to do. Get some of your hot girls to go and circulate among the Jewish guys. They'll seduce them and bring them with, get the, the Jewish guys to come and worship your false gods. When you do that, they will step out from under that covering, that, that covering of blessing, and then all of a sudden, they'll curse themselves. And as a result of his advice, 24,000 Jewish people died in a plague because they were seduced and taken away. And, and, so that, that was, and Jesus was saying to this church that somehow or another, something was going on, and it's to do with compromise. It was to do with people mingling with the things of the world. In fact, the word pergamum itself comes from two words, per and gamos. Per, from which we get the word perverted. It means mixed or objectionable, mixed. Gamos means marriage, so uh, monogamous. So gamos means marriage. So actually the, the name of the place means mixed marriage. It was a marriage of two cultures, the world's culture mixing with God's culture. And I just want to say leaders, churches, in a desire to be relevant with the world, don't become like the world. You see, relevance isn't so much about accommodating, it's more about engaging. You know, to, to be relevant to the world as churches or as leaders, it doesn't mean that we need to accommodate the world. It doesn't mean we need to become like the world. I I'm not talking stylistically, but I'm talking in values. But it does mean you've got to be engaging. And what I've seen, I remember as a teenager, get, I got saved when I was 15, I remember being aware of some great evangelical leaders, brilliant spokespeople, great preachers and leaders from when I was a teenager, who today are liberal in their theology. They've compromised completely. And do you know why they're liberal? In their desire to reach the world, they've given up on values which are non-negotiable. Don't mix. And I think maybe some of you are mixing. Some of you are mixing. You're compromising with the world. Jesus mentions in particular Antipas. And again, the account historically, historically was Antipas was summoned and he was told to declare Caesar as Lord and he refused. The proconsul said to Antipas, Antipas, don't you know that the whole world is against you? 
And Antipas replied, then Antipas is against the world. And he was boiled alive and died. The name Antipas, Antipas, means against, pass, people or the world. And so it doesn't matter if the whole world's against you. Don't compromise. There was a, a pianist playing in this huge concert hall and it was an incredible performance. And at the end of it, the whole concert hall stood and cheered and gave him a standing ovation. At the end of his uh, performance, as he walked off, he, he was totally downcast. And the manager said, well, why were you downcast? And he said, well, hey, did you not see everyone standing and applauding you? He said, yeah, but there was one guy in the front row. He, he didn't stand. And, and the manager said, listen, that's one guy. Everyone else loved it. And, he said, and the, the performer said, that wasn't just one guy. That was the, the composer of the music that I played. His opinion was the only one that counted. And at the end of it all, right, you can please the world. You can try and please people and try and just give up on your values in order to appease people. But the reality is we only have one that we actually ultimately have allegiance before, and it's God himself. Fourthly, don't tolerate. Say, don't tolerate. Thanks, three of you. Revelation 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church at Thyatira says, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance. And I know that you're doing more than you did at first. So well done. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. You know, I just want to make a point here. In a, in a world where the, cha- the tolerance is championed as the ultimate value. In fact, there's a movie out this year, Love is Tolerance and Tolerance is Love. Notice here, Jesus praises the church for their love. Well done for loving. Well done for loving. And you're doing more than you used to do. I'm guessing that's probably they're doing loving acts. So they're very, very loving as a church. Well done, but you're too tolerant. So in Jesus's mind, he's looking for loving intolerance. Was Jesus tolerant? Well, yes and no. Yes, he was tolerant of sinners. All right, thank God for that, right, Dan? Yeah, amen, thank God for that. Thank God he's tolerant of sinners like us. But was he tolerant of sin? No chance. He died because of sin. So we've got to be tolerant about some things, but, not, but Jesus was saying, this church, this church, you're too tolerant. And they were, they were tolerant of this person, Jezebel. No, if you're going to have a kid and she's a little girl, you're picking the names for the girl. There are certain names you want to avoid. All right, any kids, right? So Adolf is a bad name. Uh, Osama, it's not a good one. Hillary, Donald, okay? There's certain names. You, these days you just want to avoid certain names. Um, one, one family I heard the thing, oh, we want to call our kid a, a Bible name. So let's, they didn't really know their Bible that well, so they just started looking up Bible names, and they found this one, Jezebel. Oh, that's a nice name. We'll call it Je- Jezebel. Dude, listen, context is everything, all right? Read the context of the verses. It's just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's a good name. Jezebel appears in the Bible on two occasions. It's in Revelation, here in these verses, and also in First and Second Kings. Jezebel was married to Ahab. And here's, here's the question. So Jesus is saying you tolerate Jezebel I'm, I'm putting to you this. I don't know whether or not really there was a name of a person in that church called Jezebel. I don't know. There might have been. I mean, it might have just been a sheer coincidence there happened to be a person in that church called Jezebel. But I do know that it's probably an allusion to the Jezebel of the Old Testament, 
Just like in the bit before, how it alluded to Balak and Balaam from the Old Testament. There's links, 400, actually 400 quotes throughout Revelation from the Old Testament. So Jezebel probably links, so in your, in your mind you should think, all right, okay, what was it about this person in this church that linked to this Old Testament character? And I, I, I want to propose to you that actually it's addressing a, a spirit that attacks churches. I'm not a super spiritual guy. I'm not going looking for demons everywhere. But I, I'm not naive as well. And I do believe that there is an agenda, a demonic agenda, that does attack churches, and we're going to call it the Jezebel spirit. So let me give you some hallmarks of the Jezebel spirit from the verses here and also from 1 and 2 Kings. And you've got, you cannot tolerate it. Don't give it an inch in your church, in your ministry, or in your life. Jezebel, number one, is hard to confront. Notice Jesus said, you tolerate Jezebel. Why do they tolerate Jezebel? Because it's very hard to confront. Because you feel slightly intimidated to confront. It's almost like sand through fingers. It's, it's, it's like ducking and diving. You can't really get a handle on it. Very demonic. Hard to confront. Seems spiritual. It says she calls herself a prophet. Now, by the way, it's, it's said in the feminine, but actually this could be a man or a woman in a church environment who calls them, they come across all spiritual. Probably has a weakness desiring a position of influence. Calls herself a prophet. Secondly, Jezebel causes fear and makes leaders want to quit. In 1 Kings chapter 19, in verses 3 and 4, it says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. And then it goes on and says, and he went alone into the wilderness and traveled a day and he sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. So on one hand, he's fleeing for his life. On the other hand, he's asking God would take his life. There's a lot of confusion in his soul. But it was the craziest irony because Elijah had just seen Mount Carmel. He'd just seen the prophets of Baal defeated in an in a incredible conquest. And yet here now he's running for his life. That just doesn't add up. It was a, a spiritual intimidation that came through this person, Jezebel. Jezebel undermines spiritual authority. So Jezebel, this queen in the Old Testament, caused the downfall of two kings, Ahab, her husband, and Joram. Furthermore, the first thing she did when she became queen was she killed the prophets of the Lord. She had it in for any, any positions of authority, had it in for especially spiritual authority. And this is, this is Satan's tactics all the time. Strike the shepherds and you'll scatter the sheep. So the Jezebel spirit will come to come against spiritual authority in churches. Look at the verse in, ver- in Revelation verse 20. It says, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. And you think, well, I don't have people in my church who are doing that. So I don't think Jezebel's a problem. But I just want to make a point. Why those two sins? Sexual immorality and food sacrifice. Why those two? In Acts chapter 15, apostles and elders gathered to make a ruling about how New Testament churches should behave. It says in Acts 15.29, and their instruction, the only negative instruction was, hey, do all these things, but here's the two things you don't do. You have to abstain from food sacrifice to idols and from sexual immorality. So here's the point. It wasn't just random two things that Jezebel was trying to make happen in a church. They happened to be the very two things that went against the translocal leadership, apostles, and the local leadership, eldership. So the point is this. In this church, the agenda of the Jezebel spirit led directly into overt sin. 
But the agenda is bigger than just getting people to sin. The agenda is getting people to do what is contrary to the translocal and the local leadership vision. So it's an undermining agenda, a spirit that is designed to try and undermine the vision of a movement and a church and a network. So this is so important. Different vision is division, different DNA, trying to produce something different within something and it's an agenda that's dark. And Jesus says, don't tolerate Jezebel. Titus chapter three, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up divisions after warning them once then twice, have nothing more to do with them. So I just want to encourage you, be people who are radically protect your church environments. Honor leadership, pray for leadership, speak well of leaders, handle disagreements well. Don't let anything build up in your soul to protect your heart from going off on bad tangents. Say amen. So let's say hallelujah to ease the tension in the room. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Okay, wake up, number five, wake up. Turn to your neighbor and say, wait. In fact, actually, wake them up. Turn, turn to your neighbor and say, wake up. <laughs> Revelation chapter three, verse one. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what's about to die, for I have not found your, de- sorry, found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Sardis was a well-known church. It had a reputation, that's what it says in the verses. Very well-known church. The problem is, its reputation was based on past track record rather than current trajectory. They were no longer current with the Lord. It's very possible for individuals, for a small group, for a ministry area, a business, or a church, to look like it's going great, but actually behind the scenes, it's declining. It's got the reputation, because that's how things have been going, but it doesn't necessarily reflect on the reality of where things are at. It's like the polar star. The polar star is apparently 323 uh, light years away from Earth. 323 light years away. That means 300 years ago, the polar star could have imploded and we wouldn't see it. We would still see it there shining brightly, even though it's no longer a reality. It'd take us now 23 years before we ever saw it disappear. The, we, we can, churches can live on a, on a shiny, it's like cut flowers. It can, it can look like it's alive, but actually its source and its nourishment has been cut off. I was at a, a leadership training event a couple of weeks ago and the guy very helpfully drew a curve for me. And uh, he, he drew this curve which represents uh, an organization or a church or a business or a small group. And every organization starts by growing and then it gets to this point of being thriving. And then it starts declining if something doesn't change and then eventually dies. And the question, and, and he, he in, this, in this seminar got us to draw two lines across it and basically divide this curve into quarters. And he asked the question, where, what quarter are you in, maybe individually? Are you, as a, as a believer, are you growing? Are you thriving? Or are you actually declining? Or are you dying? You could ask that about your church. In fact, you could, you could, you could, you could take this diagram 
And you could use it for your small group, your ministry area, your business, or a, a department within a business. You could, you could take this and you could place where are things going in your organization. Now, the good news is you can change things midpoint. You might have peaked and now you're declining or even dying. But you can have an aha moment where you gain some wisdom, maybe a conference like this, maybe it's in a prayer time with the Lord, maybe it's in a season of prayer and fasting, maybe it's in, in a one-to-one with one of your elders in the church where you just gain some wisdom, you have an aha moment, and it, all of a sudden you do something, a moment happens, and a new trajectory starts, and all of a sudden that which was declining can suddenly start growing. And actually that's why organizations do this. Like this. And the plateaus are necessary because they're the moments where you figure things out and you go, aha, and then there's a new momentum. But it is the exact same in your own life as well. So you've got to reflect, where are you at on this journey? Sardis had an Acropolis. It was a, it's, Acropolis means a summit city, 500 meters above the valley. It was, it was impenetrable. It had three steep sides and a very torturous winding path all the way up to the... Literally, it was impenetrable. Hardly anyone could defeat the city of Sardis. However, on two occasions in their history, two armies defeated Sardis. One was with Cyrus the Great. He marched with his Persian army and they pushed the population back to the walls of the city. And for two weeks, they circled the city trying to find a way into this impenetrable fortress 500 meters above them on this, on this precipice. One of their soldiers sat for a whole day staring trying to figure out a way in and as he stared and watched there was a man on the the barracks on on the on the walls a soldier dropped his helmet down from the walls and he, he thought no one was watching so the soldier made his way down a path that you could only see from above got his helmet and made his way back up again cyrus's soldier clocked the route and he went to cyrus he said tonight i'm going to take a band of men and we will come like a thief in the night and we will conquer the city. And sure enough, that night, they came with a small band and found the, the walls of Sardis literally unguarded. The people in Sardis were so self-confident that their city was impenetrable that they didn't even think to post the guard. And that night, the city fell like a thief in the night. That's crazy. Incredibly, 200 years later, the exact same thing happens with a Greek king. All right, just read your history books, you can take Sardis, it's dead easy. But the city was taken because they were complacent, asleep, overconfident. They were unaware of the danger and it cost them their freedom. And here's the, here's the danger here in this church. Beware of pride, leaders. Beware of pride because of your track record. You have a reputation. You have a reputation for being alive. But you're not current. Past success has blinded you to your present reality. You feel untouchable and secure. Ego and pride have kicked in. You, li- you believe in your own spin. And you're no longer current with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Number six, look for the open door. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David's. He is the one who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
This whole idea of God giving you a door, an open door, and this church was obviously in a place of weakness and vulnerability. It didn't feel like it was on top of the world. It probably didn't feel like Sardis, this church that had a reputation. It probably felt the opposite. It probably felt a little bit under things. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to give you an open door. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you look at open door elsewhere in Scripture, you find one example in, in Isaiah where God said he would give Cyrus an open door in terms of taking territories. God was going to open up territories from an open door. Paul the Apostle talks in Corinthians in a couple of places about how God would open a door of effective ministry for him. And it was talking about taking territory and taking grounds and success and an opportunity that maybe no one else would get. And it would be a God-given opportunity and it was to do with influence. So God was saying to this church who weren't feeling like they were motoring, he was saying, actually, sometimes when you're not feeling on top of things, that's the very time when God's ready to open up a door for you. You don't feel like you're firing on all cylinders. You don't feel like you're the, you're the ultimate leader. You don't feel like your area is in the best place. You're actually feeling down. And yet sometimes when you're feeling down, that's the very time when God will open up a door for you. Sometimes the greatest open doors come in the moments of crisis. Sometimes the greatest open door comes in the tough times. So you've got John the apostle on the island of Patmos. He was restricted, a great apostle. And now he's placed in a prison island. Imagine how restrictive that must have been for, for an apostle who just wanted to go and take grounds. And yet it was in that environment, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what will take place after this. So John himself, while feeling restricted, God gave him an open door. And the reality is this. John's influence from Patmos was greater than his influence from any other place he had been up until that point. In his place of restriction, that's when actually God used him to influence the world. And today we're reading his book and God used him to write John, the gospel of John, probably after Revelation and the epistles of John as well. He influenced the world more in his restricted time than he did when he had freedom to walk around freely. Church of Philadelphia, Jesus said, I know you have little strength, but in the context of that, Jesus said, I'm going to give you an open door. Apparently Philadelphia was a city that was used by the Greek culture, to spread Greek culture. It was like a missionary city which was used as an, a doorway into a whole region to spread Hellenistic Greek culture. So that's the city, that's a secular city. And into that, into that city, God says, church, you're going to be an influential church. Even though you feel like you're firing in all cylinders, I'm going to give you an opening. And notice in this verse, he doesn't tell us what the opening is. He doesn't tell us what the open door is. And he does that deliberately because then we would not, oh, we'd say, okay, that's what it is. God just wants you to know that sometimes when you're in the toughest times, he's going to go open up for you the best opportunities. And so we see people like David, restricted in a wilderness, running for his life, living in a cave, hiding from Saul in the Old Testament. But wasn't it the case that it was in that environment he had open door and he'd got to know God more than any other period in his life. And some of the Psalms came out of that and that became the very foundation of a successful ministry. You see, Joseph, it was while he was restricted going through the hardest times that God prepared his character and gave him the skills of leadership he needed to become the influencer God was going to lead him into. I mean, for us as a church, I remember when we, we'd got to the point where we, we just got stuck at 50 people Started the church, got stuck at 50 people. I was saying, God, I was crying out to God, what's next? And it was in that place of not feeling on top of the world, but feeling weak. And God speaks, gives you the gem of the idea that led us to 
build, sorry, to buy a building in Leith and that open up the next wave of success and growth. It's that God will give you an opening. I don't know what the opening will be for you. The principle is this though. When you're not feeling on top form, when you're feeling weak, when you're feeling like your back's against the wall, you're just ready for God to give you an opening. He's gonna give you an open door. He's gonna let you see something in God that will unlock the next level for your life and ministry. Say amen if you agree. Seven, be radical. Chapter three, verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea had become a church that was just lukewarm, made Jesus want to puke. It had become placid and tame and tepid. Apparently, historically, there were hot springs on the outskirts of the city of Laodicea, and they would pipe the hot spring water into the town. By the time it reached the town, it had become tepid. So again, Jesus is using something in the physicality of that place to make a spiritual point, that some of you, you're no longer hot like you used to be at at the source of the spring. You're now tepid, and you make me want to be puke. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, Scotland is an amazing place. You think of the history of Scotland. You think of the impact of Scotland. Some of the Scottish inventions, I mean, some of the greatest things were invented in Scotland. So let me give you a list. Bicycles, colour photography, criminal fingerprinting. The Bank of England. We invented the Bank of England. Okay. Woo. Golf, refrigeration, the telephone, chicken tikka masala. Let's hear for chicken tikka masala. Yay. That was invented in Glasgow. The television, lawnmower, postage stamp, microwave, penicillin, radar, flushing toilets. We did that one. Raincoats. You can see that one being invented in Scotland, can't you? Macintosh came with that. And deep fried Mars bars, right? All the important inventions. That, and that's just a very short list. I could, the list goes on and on and on. Um, interest, amazingly, Scots are less than 1% of the world's population, and yet 11% of Nobel Peace Prizes have been given to Scottish people. So, where does all that come from? Where all the, where's all this invention? Where's all this innovation? Where, where's all this success come from, from Scotland? Let me read you an article from BBC entitled Made in Scotland. From golf to television to telephone, Scotland prides itself on being a country which has led the way in many of the world's great inventions. But where does this power of invention spring from? In the Reformation. The Scottish Kirk demanded that there would be a school in every parish. And 200 years on, that learning led to the ingenuity and creativity of the Scottish Enlightenment. So the point is this, the fruit came from a root, and the root was radical. John Knox caused it to be a reformation. He was radical. His job used to be a guy who stood there with a sword and killed people. That's what he did before he became a theologian. Okay, he was radical. This guy was radical. And he brought a reformation in Scotland. And the reformation he brought wasn't just theological and understanding that you're saved by grace. And that, that truth spread like wildfire in, in the UK and across Europe at that time. John Knox brought a reformation. It wasn't just a theological reformation. He actually had the backing of the military. 
And so literally, they, they, they brought this whole opportunity for people to have freedom of worship, and people came alive with faith in Jesus. And it was the case that up until that point, there had been people who had believed in salvation through faith alone in Jesus for many years, but they'd had to worship in secret, under trees, in barns, in secret meetings. But when the Reformation took place, all of a sudden those secret meetings and all those little locations rose to the fore and they became the parishes of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. It was a radical movement, red-hot radical. It was like the Chinese underground church in the early days, radical, on the edge. The tragedy is that actually it's no longer that. But when they started that reformation, the implications in society were very clear. John Knox's vision was to have a kirk and a school in every village, a college in every town, a university in every city. The church took on the distribution of food and care for the poor. And that continued to be the case up until recent history, when the government took on board from the church the care for the poor. But it was the church that birthed all these things. It was, the birth, it was the church that birthed the possibility of education, which led to the Enlightenment, which led to many of the great inventions and the influence that Scotland has had. It came from radical leadership, bold convictions, and an awesome church in Scotland. The tragedy is today, you know, in Herald, Scottish Herald 2017 in Easter, they published the article, Christianity is in Crisis in Scotland. And they reported in that article that since 2002, a third of the church in Scotland has disappeared since 2002. On average, and this is based on Peter Briley's church recent report in Scotland, on average, 10 churches a month are closing in this very small country. And that has been the average since 2002. 10 churches a month going every month since 2002. Kenny Borthwick used to head up clan gathering in Scotland. And I remember the last time he actually spoke at clan gathering, I heard him speak and I, I was so moved by a story he told. He told a story about he had been at a, a new wine event down in England and a guy from Africa had stood up, and from Uganda, had stood up and talked about how he was going to preach that evening on the idols of the UK. And Kenny Borthwick admitted that, you know, he kind of knew what was coming. You were, going to, you were going to tackle materialism and consumerism. And I, I know this sermon. But that's not what he said. He said, the idol of the UK is safety. And then he went on to say that when, when, I, when I visit the UK, I describe to people the work I do in Uganda. And every time, people show a great interest in it. And some people ask me more questions. And then they, invariably, many people will ask, can I come and be part of it? Can I visit? I always say, yes, you can. And the next question is always the same. Is it safe? And I say, no, it's not. And he said, and they never come. And he said, the idol in the UK is safety. You play it safe. And so I just want to, I just want to end this session just by encouraging the radical. Be radical. God's looking for bold, risk-taking, visionary leaders who stay close to the hot springs, the source of life, God himself, full of the Holy Spirit. It's not your zeal or enthusiasm. That will only keep you going for a certain time. It's the power of God flowing through your veins that's going to keep you going for the long term. But it's that bold, visionary leadership 
God's looking to see again. And this, this day is all about that. It's all about helping us be wiser and stronger leaders. But don't be safe bets. Don't be tame, safe bet, predictable leaders. And listen, it actually doesn't matter if no one else is doing around you what you're dreaming of doing. It doesn't matter if, but they're not pushing as hard as we want to push. It doesn't matter. Because the, the, the nation's needing different results. So you do the same things, you get the same results. It's time to actually change our momentum, change our trajectory, and have a fresh boldness and, a, and a, a little bit of aggression in the right sense to see some ground taken in our nation. Amen.